If you guys could turn to me to 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And today as we talk about this huge subject that touches all of us in anxiety, I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with that now that you would give them rest, that you would give them peace as they learn and choose to cast those on you because you care for them. In Jesus' name, amen. A really, really relevant subject this morning, anxiety, because we've all experienced it. Anybody not experienced it? I just want to meet you. just want to meet who you are because you probably have like a third eye or something, and that would cause you anxiety. But, you know, that feeling of worry that, you know, it's just not a happy feeling at all. And so when we think about why Peter wrote this, well, you got to consider the audience that he was writing to. It was an audience that was facing extreme anxiety, right? If you just kind of think of just normal anxiety, the things that we kind of go through right now, and we just kind of think of things like, you know, our health and well-being, of ourselves and then of family members and friends and we kind of worry about finances and we kind of worry about loneliness if we are alone we worry about failure you know if you're in school or in your job or whatever and all these things that we worry about and all these things in our present day in our culture and society that we worry about right now all those things those worries they experienced also but they also experienced this they were persecuted Right? So they faced all the stuff that we worry about, all the common worries we have, and they were persecuted. And so their lives were at risk, their family members' lives, their friends' lives were at risk at any time. Actually, all the time, they were confronted with danger, with imprisonment, with torture. And so they had that on top of it. See, anxiety is one of those feelings that all of us have experienced at some point in our lives, whether it's in our past, whether it's right now, or whether we are going to experience it in the future. We've all felt anxiety, and the idea behind that root word of anxiety is this, distraction, distraction. That distraction that opens us up to instability, to insecurity, to uncertainty, to doubt, which leads us to those feelings of fear and feeling unsafe. If we all experience this feeling sometime in our life, how are we to respond to it when it is in our life? What are we to do? Is, is there something that we can do? And this is where verse 7 comes in. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, this word casting, Peter acknowledges that anxiety is real. He doesn't discount it. He doesn't tell you to ignore it. He doesn't tell us to run from it. Yet this is what some of us do when we're faced with anxiety, isn't it? This is what we do. We cope. We medicate our anxieties by discounting what we feel, by ignoring it, just kind of brushing it under the rug, or we run from it. What ends up happening is just this self-sabotaging and the self-destruction because rather than actively doing something about it like Peter instructs us to do, we distract ourselves with the things that even hurt us more. You know those unhealthy relationships that we get ourselves into? Those different substances like drugs and alcohol and food that we get ourselves into? 
And there are many things that people do to distract them from the reality of their anxiety. People look to porn because of loneliness or because of whatever. They look at sexually immoral relationships. They even look at harmless things like watching TV, going on a long ride, getting absorbed by their hobbies, playing video games. All those sorts of things that they're just kind of running away from their stuff. And it's not that those harmless things are in themselves bad. It's when those things have taken the place of actively doing something about your anxiety, not discounting it, not ignoring it, not running from it, but doing something about it in your life right now. Peter tells us to actively do something about our anxiety. He says to cast, cast all your anxieties on him. Take a look at Psalm chapter 11. Keep in mind who this is about. This is David and all the things that he's going through, all the persecution he's facing, his life is in danger, all this kind of stuff. And then also keep in mind how many times David references the Lord. Okay, starting in verse 1 here. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. When David was faced with anxiety, all those people around him told him to what? Flee like a bird to your mountain. But David questioned that. Because if David flees like a bird to the mountain, does the anxiety go away? Does it go away? And maybe you kind of dilute it a little bit. Maybe you kind of discount it just a little bit because you're kind of running away from it. But it doesn't go away. If you flee from your worries in anxiety, you're still an anxious person. And you can medicate your anxieties by covering it up or running from it, but it's still there. Now look at what David did. He took refuge in the Lord. He took refuge in the Lord. He cast anxieties on the Lord, knowing who God is. He knew God cared for him. Cast. What does cast mean? Throw, right? Chuck that sucker, right? It means to throw it. Like um, those guys who handle your luggage at the airport. Like that. You know, my dad and I, we went to China many years ago. And he got this fine china set from China. That's pretty awesome, China from China. Anyway, there were these plates and teacups and like, it was a whole set. It was like a teapot and bowls and all this kind of stuff. And it was really, really awesome stuff. It was so thin. It was like paper thin and you can almost see through it. It was really, really fine stuff. And do you think he was going to check that in? No way. He had that stuff wrapped up with so much bubble wrap. Like this little teacup just was like humongous, right? And it was like so much bubble wrap. And then he cared for it like a newborn baby. He was just like, don't get near me. Like walk away. Like he was an awesome offensive lineman. And he was just like walking away. And he didn't even put it in the overhead bin. He sat that whole 16, 18 hour flight with it on his lap. And when he ate, he ate off of my tray. Like he wouldn't even put the tray down. He's like, hey, let me eat like this. You know, that's how some of us treat our anxieties. 
we just kind of baby them. And instead of chucking that sucker, chucking it into that luggage bin, I just kind of like, oh, yeah, just like my, my little baby. And casting all your anxiety, toss it, throw it. You know, I was on that plane too, and I was checking out this stuff, and then I noticed that there was this package with that fragile tape, right? And it was all over this package, and I noticed that this package was there, and I was just really interested. What's the guy going to do with that, I wonder? Is he going to carefully place it, or what is he going to do? And I saw him just grab it by the twine and throw it. <laughs> I was like, that's why my dad didn't do that. Why is that? There's no value in it for those guys. It might be valuable to you, but to those guys, it's just another piece of luggage. They just want to get on with it. They just want to move on. They're wanting to get rid of that so they can go to the next plane. That's somebody else's problem. I think we need to be more like those guys. You just cast your anxieties. Let them have it. It's not ours to value and to keep. Now, this Greek word casting, it's pretty interesting. It's in the present participle in verse 7. I'm getting a little Englishy on you. And so, now why does this even matter? Why does it matter that this is a participle? Well, if the word cast was in the imperative, it would change the meaning of this. If it was in the imperative form, it would change the meaning of this. The verb casting would be able to be interpreted independently from verses 5 and 6 if it was in the imperative. But since it's a participle, it can't. It's attached. Meaning, verse 7 cannot be detached from verses 5 and 6. They're together. So let's read verses 5 through 7 together because it is together. And if you want to hear more about humility, what we talked about last week, verses 5 and 6, go into iTunes and that's on last week. So verses 5 through 6, 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's all together. Now, I brought up just the virtue of humility last week because I think that it needed to be presented by itself because it's that big of a virtue. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is a foundational piece in living the Christian life, including how we deal with anxiety, which I believe needs its own sermon also. So last week we looked at what needs to be present in our lives, namely humility. And this morning we'll be looking at this characteristic that needs to be absent from our lives, anxiety. Now, I didn't go into anxiety last week because I wanted to focus our time on humility, but verses 5 and 6 are attached to that, as I've mentioned. And so this is what I'm trying to say by combining those two things. Verses 5 all the way through 7, this is what I'm just simply saying. The presence of humility is directly correlated to the absence of anxiety. That's what I believe the scriptures are saying. The presence of anxiety in your life is evidence of pride in your life. Self-absorption, self-centeredness, self-pity, holding on to those worries like a baby because we get more attention from people. Oh, look at that cute little problem you got. He's so cute. They're not like a baby. Babies are cute. Even the ones that look like grumpy old men, those are still cute babies. <laughs> that anxiety you're holding on to is just an ugly self-centeredness. 
And it's not to say that your issues are not important or shouldn't be addressed, but we have to live in reality where God is God. And your problems are not too big for him to handle. He cares about the anxiety that you're carrying. He knows what you're carrying. And when you carry your own anxiety, it has negative effects on you. That's why he doesn't want you to have it. Because it turns into self-pity. And what it really marks is an absence of humility in your life. Fully consumed with yourself rather than being consumed with God. See, this is what happened in Luke chapter 10 with Mary and Martha. You can turn to that story, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Now, what was this good portion that Mary chose? It wasn't ambitious laziness. I know we wish that it was that, but it's not laziness. It was that she knew her life needed to be at the feet of Jesus. She knew that she had to live under the mighty hand of God. Now, we need to remember this even in our acts of service, right? Because a lot of us are just service-oriented, and we want to serve, we want to serve, and we're like Martha. We need to be careful of this because there needs to be a heart to desire communion with God like Mary had. If this does not happen, then those anxieties, those worries with what we do for God may rob us of communion with God, and that's not a place we want to be. And if we're busy serving Jesus without the posture to commune with Jesus, that might cause bitterness, resentment, burnout in our service because we'll miss the good portion, communion with God. We'll miss that will begin to mistake service, even if it's good service, with communion with Jesus when it's not. Now, some of us may struggle with laziness, but I think in our Bay Area culture, I actually think we struggle with the opposite. I think more of us struggle with the distraction of hustling. We're really good at keeping busy. We're really good at trying to get ahead, get better schooling, get a better job, get better pay, get better everything. We're so hurried. And we're so busy to get on to the next thing. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you just kind of sat in solitude, just you and God, casting all of your anxieties on him, just giving it to him, sitting at his feet, under his mighty hand, praying, talking to him, communing with him, choosing the good portion, just sitting there. You were not created to carry the burdens that you carry. Carrying all of those burdens is a sign of pride in your life. It's a sign of a lack of humility, thinking you can solve all of those problems rather than humbly releasing them to God for him to deal with. And it's pretty arrogant to think that you can solve all of your problems, isn't it? Because if you think you can solve all of your problems, you probably also think you can solve other people's problems. The presence of humility is in direct correlation to the absence of anxiety. And the opposite is true too, right? The presence of anxiety is directly correlated to the absence of humility. 
Humility and anxiety have a really tough time coexisting with each other. It's impossible. And we live in this society where Prozac might as well be an over-the-counter drug. It's so prescribed. There are so many issues surrounding anxiety today, and so many people are medicated over their anxiety, and for some of them, it's legitimate. I'm not going to say it's not. Some people really need it, but all? I'm not a medical doctor. I just play one on television, but it seems abnormally high. It just seems that way. American Psychological Association, June 2012, volume 43, number 6, page 36. I came across this article. It was the cover story about the inappropriate prescribing of these types of medications. And here's the quote. Research shows that all too often Americans are taking medications that may not work or may be inappropriate for their mental health problems. American Psychological Association. And here's a quote from a psychology professor, uh, Dr. Stephen Holland of Vanderbilt University. I would say at least half the folks who are being treated with antidepressants aren't benefiting from the active pharmacological effects of the drugs themselves, but from the placebo effect. At least half. New York Times, August 19, 2013, Dr. Richard Friedman, clinical psychiatry professor at Royal Cornell Medical College. One in five American adults takes at least one psychotropic medication. One in five? 20% of the adult population in America? 20% of you are medicated with some psychotropic drug? A huge problem is that people are not humble to recognize they need God in their life. If you don't believe in the mighty hand of God, where else can you turn but to others or to yourself or to some substance? And can people or other things really give you that peace, really give you that rest? If you've lost hope and faith that God wants your anxieties and wants you to cast them on him, where else can you really go? Who else, what else wants to take your worries? The medication doesn't want to, it's inanimate. Those doctors don't want to. You want to know why you get prescribed so much? Because they don't want to deal with you. Seriously. They don't want you to go through weeks, months, years of psychotherapy with them. They don't want to deal with you. Take two of these. Thank you for your money. Seriously. Have you ever thought about that? Why one in five are prescribed? Why at least half have no effect? This is what they're doing to you. I'm not doing some conspiracy theory thing. The statistics are there. The psychiatry articles are there. The psychology articles are all there. Because no one wants your worries. They don't want your worries. They want the next patient. They want the money. God wants your worries. God wants your worries. And he invites you to cast them on them. He knows every single one that you're carrying right now, and he wants it. And the only way you'll cast them to him is by humbling yourself. You're not going to do it in arrogance. You're not going to do it with a prideful heart. The only way you're going to do that is if you humble yourself, recognizing you can't solve all of your problems on your own. Because if you insist on taking matters into your own hands, rather than the mighty hand of God, you will be anxious. You will be worried. And what that reveals is that you're consumed with yourself, rather than your communion with God. 
And a lot of us have this facade. We want to look like we're all about God, but in reality, we're all about ourselves. And it's just pride. It's pride in there. Now, this doesn't mean that all of your worries, all of your anxieties will just suddenly, simultaneously disappear when you cast them. Because if it's a cause of your anxiety, for example, singleness, it doesn't mean that in the next hour you're going to find a romantic relationship. If it does, praise the Lord, right? Or if you're unemployed or underemployed or just don't like your job, that you're going to find a better job on Monday. The causes of your anxiety may be totally out of your control, but the anxiety itself is not. The anxiety you have something to deal with. The anxiety is something that you can cast to God right now. The cause you can too, but the causes have other players in it, right? The anxiety just between you and God, no other players between you and God. Now the causes of the anxiety are important, but the thing is, is that they change all the time. They're changing all the time. If it's not relationships, it's finances. If it's not finances, it's your health. If it's not your health, it's something else. It's always something. It's always changing. There will always be some cause to your anxiety. God knows this. You know this. The causes are variable. But the anxiety is always constant. You always have it. That's what he wants. That constant, that thing that is always there, Throw it to him. The causes change all the time. Give him the constant. Give him that anxiety from your life. And the variables just don't matter as much because whatever they produce in the form of anxiety, you give to him so you can live in peace and you can rest free of distractions that come in between you and God and the people around you. He wants your anxieties. Who in the world offers you that? That they want your anxieties. Even your spouse. I do not want my wife's anxiety. I'm sorry. I love her to death. I, will die. I would rather die for her than take her anxieties. I do not want them. <laughs> oh, seriously. You want your spouse's anxiety? You're crazy. You want your kid's anxieties? No. My kid's about to be a teenager. Girls, no. I do not want your things. God does. You know, like, go, go over there. Who wants that? Now, why does God want your anxieties? Why? Latter part of verse 7. Because he cares for you. That's why. Because he cares for you. He knows every intricate thing about you. He cares about every detail in your life. And this phrase, he cares for you. This blew the minds of those receiving Peter's letter. It blew their minds. For us, we're just like, oh yeah, God cares for me. That's nice. But for these guys who were not familiar with the God who cared for them, blew their mind. Why? Because the pagan gods that they were accustomed to, they weren't like that. Those gods weren't like that. Jews. Jews were familiar with the God who cared. But these pagans who had other views about their gods, very, very different. For example, look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, this is when Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal, or Baal if you're a scholar or something, if you're challenging my pronunciation. I see you laughing, seminary student. <laughs> Starting in verse 24, 
You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now jump over to verses 26 through 29. There's just something I want to point out here. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god! Either he is amusing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Elijah has no sarcastic bone in his body, by the way. He's so dead serious about those gods relieving themselves. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Do you get a sense about what these pagan people thought about their gods and what they had to do? You get a sense about this? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Do you get an idea of what these guys were receiving upon, with their relationship with their pagan gods? See, care was not what the pagan gods were known for. They were known for things like fertility, for the harvest, for war. But a god who cares? No! No, that's not what they were known for. You had a specific issue, you brought it to that God. Is it because they cared? No, it's because they had a lot of breasts, so they were the God of fertility. So if you go to Ephesus today, that pagan God is there, that idol God is there. Give us rain, give us harvest, give us children, give us, give us, give us. Care? They don't have a God of care. So when Peter introduced God, a God who cared for them, revolutionary. What? A God who cares? I want to propose that we are in a society that is just the same. Where if there's a God, he doesn't care. No one cares. Look at what's happening in our world. Look at what's happening in Nigeria, Boko Haram. Look at what's happening all over the world with ISIS. There's no God who cares. And even if there was, I don't want to serve a God. I don't want to worship a God like that. I want to believe in a God like that. Yet this is what Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, and Psalm 53, verse 1 says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool. See, our society is very much like the one Paul wrote to in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Our God is a God who cares, even though we live in a world where many believe he doesn't, where we've exchanged God to be anything else except for who he really is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools there is a doubt that God cares, you can look to a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. No one disputes it, secular, religious, or not. And that's Jesus on the cross. No one disputes that historic event. If you ever want to question about if God cares for you, you look at Jesus on the cross. And look what he said in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a God who cares. He wants to be with you. You know, that's the definition of heaven, is that you're in the presence of God. Definition of hell, you're separated from God. 
very simplistic, but just in simplistic terms, that's what it is. I'm going to get a little bit more personal in just terms of my own story of anxiety and things that I've gone through. And even as I was kind of rethinking this, I was crying. And many of you who know me, I'm not really a crier. And I might do that here. And that would be awesome. (laughs) When I was in high school, my dad went into some serious neurological stuff. And so that kind of started the road onto the financial perils of my family. And so that was an anxiety-ridden time in my life. And I'm trying to get ready for college, and I'm trying to do all this kind of stuff, and I'm taking them to doctor's appointments. And essentially, my whole senior year, I was missing a lot of my high school classes. And so I don't know if it's a cause for this or not, but when I entered college, my first two years of college, I entered a depression. And so I experienced this depression. And to go to school, I actually had a full ride. I had a full ride to go to school. And so financially, I was kind of set. But then because of my depression, my grades dropped. And so when my grades dropped, then I had this anxiety of how am I going to pay for school now? And so all this time, I knew this verse, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I kept trying, but for two years, my anxiety was not any better. My worries were not any better. And I knew that he cared for me, but I didn't know the cause of my depression. I didn't know what was going on with me. And when it finally left in my third year of college, I had to work three jobs to stay in school. But at least I wasn't depressed anymore. But I was anxious about my finances. And I was anxious about my grades, because if it wasn't depression, then it was what happened in my third year of college, my parents' divorce. So if it's not depression, it's my family relationship, and then we're entering a divorce. And then I had a different cause to my anxieties, and one of the biggest ones for me was what was going to happen to my younger sister who was still in high school? What's going to happen to her? This has been tough enough for me. And so how was this going to affect her? Was she still going to be living at home? And what was going to happen? So she's really, really bright. She ended up going to UC San Diego and living with my aunt. And that was a tough year to continue casting my anxieties on him because I knew he cared for me. But I was like, how? My finances are a mess. My family's now a mess. Like, how are you caring for me? But I know you do. And so my circumstances over those past three years just didn't seem like it. Even through high school, it didn't seem like it. My dad was sick that whole time. And then it's my fourth year of college. And my dad told me to come to his house to collect my personal belongings that year because the bank was foreclosing on his home. And so then my thoughts are on my sister and my mom. How were they going to be provided for? I just talked to a friend who lived across the street, childhood friend of mine since I was like four years old. We had the same exact house. We lived across the street from each other. And he just told me that his parents sold their house for $975,000. My parents had the same exact house. How did they go from losing a million-dollar house, all their investment property, everything that they worked for decades, to having nothing? My dad has no retirement. My mom has one that I don't know what happened to it. And at one time, things got so bad, this was a couple years later, that my dad just calls me out of the blue. My dad never used to call me. Never. My dad and I had a really fractured relationship. That's another story. But he never called me. And I always dreaded when he called me, because whenever he called me, it meant it was bad news. Because that's the only time he would call me. Hi, Albert, your grandfather died. Hi, Albert, your mom and I are going through a divorce. Hi, Albert, come get your things. The house has been foreclosed. Hi, Albert, your grandmother died. Every single time he calls, it's bad news. This time's no different. He calls, and it was to move to his place that he was renting. Otherwise, he'd be homeless. 
by this time, my dad and I had an eight-year fractured relationship because I wanted nothing to do with him anymore because I blamed him for all the stuff that was happening to my family. But God loved me too much to let that happen. He reconciled me with my dad. But he couldn't live on his own anymore. So he calls me up and he said, hey, I need you to come, otherwise I'm going to be homeless. So I hated him. But God worked on my heart. I had my own place. I had my own career in investment management. I was doing really well. This is how I ended up. I ended up sleeping in the same bunk that I grew up in. He was in my top bunk and I was on the bottom bunk. I was just thinking through my life. At the time, I was just lying at the bottom bunk. I was like, God, what's happening? What's going on here? I mean, this is nuts. Like, I love you. And I'm here sharing a bunk with my dad in this room that just fits the bunk. It just fits the bunk bed. And so it was just such a sad place. I just couldn't believe it. You know, we used to live in this six-bedroom, 4,000-square-foot home that they worked decades for. And that was a time full of anxiety for me because how were my parents going to be provided for? My dad lives in like this 40-square-foot room. What was going to happen to their future? What was going to happen to my future? Because now I'm providing for them. Like, how am I going to get married? Because how am I going to bring a girl back to a 40-square-foot room? How am I going to do any of this stuff? This is crazy to me. Then God gave me a huge promotion at my job, and he transferred me to San Francisco. And that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. So I moved out from living with my dad. Then I was able to send money back to my mom and dad and still help them because I moved up here and I got this huge promotion. And so I thought I made it through. I took this big breath of relief, and then I was able to provide for them. And then I met this girl named Katie. And two weeks into our relationship, she moves to Spain. I was like, are things that bad? It's that she committed already. And for her, a yes is a yes, a no is a no. So when she says, yes, I'm committed, she committed to this family to be an au pair and to go to school there and to work there. So it was yes. Even though it was me, she still said, sorry, I got to keep to my commitments. And so she went. We were dating for that 10 months. I was getting close to proposing to her. Right, so I was getting close to proposing to her. I flew there like a half dozen times. Within that time, I was going there like every three, four weeks, something crazy like that. The only guys in love do. I'm getting closer, and so I'm shopping for a home, right? I'm driving up here through a home. Like, oh, that would be really nice for us. And, really and then at this time, I'm starting to think about a new car for myself too, that sports car that I always wanted instead of my 81 diesel Volkswagen Rabbit. And so I'm driving, I'm like looking at this car that I wanted for all that time, and then God spoke to me. None of that's for you. I was like, What? Yes, it is. That's totally for me. No, that's not. You're going into full-time ministry. I was like, what? No. That, no. Now, at the time, I was already serving as a pastor. I was working full-time. I was serving as a full-time pastor here. I was single, so I could do both. But I wasn't going to be able to keep that pace of ministry and my work at Marketplace and be married and have a good marriage. So Katie and I, we started praying about it. We started praying about my calling. And I asked her what she wanted to do. And she told me, wherever the Lord leads you, I will follow. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Talk about anxiety. Talk about worry. Like, I have to provide. I have to help out with this stuff. But, you know, the funny thing was that was actually a really easy decision for me because I knew God's calling. So I was like, well, that's what it is. Even though I thought about all this stuff, it was easy. But was it anxiety-free? No way! How was I going to provide for my parents anymore? How was I going to provide for my new wife? Because the church at the time could only give me $1,000 a month, and my rent was more than that. How was this all going to happen? There was only one place I can cast all my anxieties, and that was God. 
because I knew he cared for me. And I couldn't do what he asked me to do if I didn't know he cared for me, that he cared for my future wife, that he cared for my parents. Anxieties are always present. I have different ones today. I have different causes today. It's just where you put them when you have them. It's the constant that you have to give. The variables are always changing every year. They always change. Do you keep them like a baby? Do you cover them up? Do you medicate with something? Do you ignore it? Or do you cast it away? I still worry about my parents. I still worry about my sister. And now that I have a wife and kids and you people in this church, I have a lot of anxiety. Seriously. If you guys knew what the staff goes through here in terms of the reporting that we have to do because of children being neglected, the elderly being neglected, like all these different things that are happening in our church, it's really worry-free. <laughs> the first thing I do before I even get out of bed, sometimes before I even open my eyes, I pray for those of you who have shared a prayer request with me. That's the first thing I do. And so last week I laid in bed until past 11 o'clock in the morning. And when I got up, I had to confess to my wife that I wasn't sleeping because I was in bed so long. I just didn't want her to think, what a lazy bum. Not that she thinks that at all. She didn't. I have the benefit of the doubt with her. She says, like, no, I wasn't thinking that at all. I was like, okay, good. I don't want to be thought of as a lazy bum by you. Other people, fine, not you. And so some of the things people in this church are dealing with, you are full of anxiety. I know it. You're full of worry. And I have to encourage you and exhort you to cast it on him. Cast it on him because he cares for you. And here's a helpful exercise that's for me that I've practiced. It might not be helpful to you, but you can try it. I imagine casting it to God just in my head. And the bigger the thing is, the bigger the thing I cast, the more he-man I get. No matter how big it is, I can throw it. So this past week as I'm praying and I have the burdens, anxieties of those things that you guys have shared with me on the church, there was this huge thing. Like, it was way bigger than me. And so I just imagined that it looked like a pumice stone. And I was able to just throw it. Throw it over to him. Cast it over to him. And it was just this past week that I did this because it was at the prompting of my spiritual director. And so she asked me where I saw God in this load that I carry and the burdens that I'm carrying with others. Where do I see God in all of this? And so as I'm thinking about this, I told her, I see God that he's not like really, really far away and that he's inaccessible and like he's a stone's throw away. But he's also not too close where I feel claustrophobic. And he's also not too close to grab it out of my hand. Because even if you open your hand and say like, take it, God, take it. You have to throw it. You have to release it. You can't just like timidly. You have to give it away. You have to throw it. You have to cast it. It's more than just opening my hand. And so that's what I was envisioning, God, that he was at a distance where I had to throw it. So here's something about casting, and you fishermen can appreciate this. There has to be some weight for you to cast, right? You have to have some weight. You cast something farther with some weight to it. You can throw a rock further than you can throw a feather. And I think there's something to be said about this casting all of our anxieties upon him when they have some weight behind them. When it's a little heavier... That's actually an easier time for you to throw it than when you're like, oh, time will pass, and let me just carry the burden and whatever. You can't throw it then. It just gets dissipated. And it takes humility to cast anxiety to God. It takes humility to believe that God's hand is indeed mighty. It takes humility to live all of this stuff out. To say we believe this is very different from actually living what we believe. 
God knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you so deeply. He loves you so dearly, and before we can live free of anxiety, we'll need to humble ourselves, knowing God is God. Only in God will there be real rest, real peace, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, that for those who need your strength and your courage to humble themselves so that they can be free of their worry, free from their anxiety, Lord, would you make known to them how much you love them and how you are mighty. God, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you for being with us through all the different causes of anxiety in our life. You go to the core and you just say, give it to me. Whatever it is, give it to me. Thank you for your care in Jesus' name. Amen.